Welcome to the Podglomerate. Vicious is a book I will always look back on and be incredibly proud of. And she was like, I'm not sure in five years you will look back on this book and be as proud. And that's a really hard thing to hear from your editor because she essentially was putting it in my court. She was like, I'm not going to tell you to rewrite this book, but I'm telling you what I think it could be. Welcome to Writers You Don't Write. I'm Jeff. And I am Kyle. And this week on the show, we have a special announcement. We are going to shut down the show for a few months. I shouldn't say shut down. This is more like a seasonal break. Uh, I promise we're coming back. We've done this a couple times in the past. I'm, I'm sorry that we do this. And if you're still listening at this point, thank you for bearing with us. But we, we need a little break. We're going to come back probably around March, uh, although we reserve the right to, to change that date. And we're going to try a couple new things. Uh, we're going to be doing a couple solo interviews. Um, we are going to be doing weekly releases. And we are going to try out the seasonal format so that we can be a little bit more consistent with, with the episodes that we're bringing to you all. Uh, we love you, our listeners, and we want to give you the best experience possible. And this is the way that we think we can do that. We're doing a little bit of light restructuring. Yeah, uh, we might add a segment here or there. Kyle's trying to convince me not to, but uh, so we'll try those segment out. Segment away, my friend. Yeah. You have my blessing on air. Heard it here first, people. But what that means in the short term is that you won't have new episodes from us for the next couple months. That shouldn't matter because there are so many amazing podcasts that are coming out uh, in the near future and already. Kyle, who's on the show this week? This week on the show, we talked to one of my favorite authors. Her name is V.E. Schwab. If, well, before we get into this, like Kyle, what would your name be if we had initials? I mean, I think it would just be K.M. Craner. I think I would go with my standard actual name, like but it, it would make me sound more official and distinguished. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you're going that route, like you might as well just change it and go like crazy with it, you know? Like R.L. Stein, I don't think that's his real name. What? So what would you do? Like throw an extra X in there? Would I be like K.M.X. Craner? Or perhaps a Z just to have people I don't know. Like, guessing all over town? J.M. Zumbro. That could work. <laughs> but anyway, I, I don't want to distract too much because that's a very dumb joke, but but did you know that Victoria actually uses uh, V.E. Schwab for her uh, children's books and Victoria Schwab for her uh, middle grade and adult books because she doesn't want her child readers to get into the adult themes of her adult books? I actually didn't know that in the interview, but I do think that is a really thoughtful and simple <laughs> way to solve what I'm sure is a serious problem for her. I, I don't know. It's it's really and she she's full of gems like that, like really weird industry specific stories that uh, you might not care about if you're not like in the book industry. But also, you know, I feel like you would since you're listening to this. But she she's awesome. I had a lot of fun with her. We talk about you know how she got into writing, how she became such a prolific author, some of the things that have happened to her across the way or along the way, uh, and you know, we really like dig into to what it means to be uh, you know, one of those authors that's just like kind of always relevant um, because of one thing or another. Um, and we do talk about her two adult series in this interview. I believe we talk about villains and I believe we talk about Shades of Magic. Uh, you should definitely go read both of them before you listen to the interview if you'd like, but even afterwards, I think you'd still enjoy them. They're both great. And now to those podcast recommendations. Well, our time is off. And before we get to the interview, squeeze them in there, Jeff. If we're specifically looking at book-related podcasts, I would listen to the Overdue podcast, which is two guys out of Philly. One reads a book each week. The other does not, and then quizzes the other on that book. They are fantastic. Uh, book Riot has like 10 podcasts at this point. All of them are great. My favorite of the Book Riot podcasts is Annotated, which really digs into the history of, of something in the publishing world. Uh, you know, they talk about the history of Braille and the history of the Pulitzer Prize. Um, it's it's fascinating stuff. Um, and then uh, if you want some non-book related stuff, uh, I mean, anything that Gimlet does, Heavyweight, for example, is fantastic. Uh, Serial Season 3 just came out. And uh, we actually just released a show, uh, two shows that I'm, I'm really, really proud of. One of them is the history of stand-up comedy. Yeah, you can binge it. It's like four hours-ish. And we'll by the time this episode is out, I think the sixth episode will be released. Um, it's a six-part series. 
and you can just binge them all at once. Uh, it's been getting really like great reviews and it's, it's pretty popular so far. So, uh, you know, keep that up, review it on iTunes. And then we also have a, a podcast on the midterm elections coming out, um, you know, weekly until the midterms. And then we'll see what happens with this thing from that point on. But it's with Matt Fuller, who is a congressional reporter at the Huffington Post. You've probably seen him on Twitter at some point. He has uh, some crazy stat. Like, I don't quote me on this because I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's like the ninth most retweeted journalist in America or something. Um, so, but in any case, he's fantastic. And uh, both of these shows are great, along with all the others that I mentioned. Uh, you can listen to all of them in the few months that we will be on break. Uh, you can also ask us what you should be listening to or reading at WWDW Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at WWDWpodcast at gmail.com. And without further ado, here is the interview with Victoria Schwab. I mean, I always like to start personally, uh, I don't know about Jeff, but when you first decided you wanted to become a writer and sort of the path you took from there. Yeah. So um, I'm not that old. I'm 31, but I've been in publishing for more than a decade, which tells you how young I started. I actually never uh, wanted to write books. I didn't think I had the attention span for it. Part of me still doesn't think I have the attention span to write something that's three or four or 500 pages long. So I started in poetry as a teenager. I think most teenagers are involved in poetry in some way <laughs> and um, getting all those angsty feelings out. And I tried every other avenue available to me besides writing books in the hope of avoiding writing books. I tried short fiction and nonfiction and screenwriting and all of these things. And then I was a sophomore in college when I realized that the reason I hadn't tried to write a book yet was because I was afraid of failing. I was afraid of not finishing it. Um, and it had less to do with more like, will it be published? And more to do with like, what if I start and I can't finish? And and I have a fairly adversarial um, attitude towards things. And so once I realized I was afraid of this thing, I knew I had to do it. So I sat down as a sophomore in college and wrote my first book. And it was genuinely terrible, as I think all first books should be. Um, but it was very pretty because I had this background in poetry. And so it was pretty enough to get the attention of my first agent. So I ended up signing with my first agent when I was 19. And that book would go on submission to publishers for more than a year. It would go to acquisitions, that final step at four different publishers, and it would never be acquired which was devastating and heartbreaking um, and really necessary. And in retrospect, I'm really glad it wasn't. And so I continued on with my education and, and I was a senior in college when I decided, okay, um, that was either a fluke or I need to do this again. Like either I'm going to be that person who leaves writing behind for a very long time and comes back in my thirties or forties um, after I've lived another kind of life, or I'm going to sit down and I'm going to try again. And so I sat down, I checked out of my studio space. At that point, I was an arts major. I checked out of my studio space for two hours a night, every single night, um, second semester of my final year. And I wrote another book and that book would go on to be my first published novel. It, it sold the fall after I graduated college. And I've been doing this in some form ever since. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing how much you've accomplished in you know the short amount of time since you've been doing this. The, the timeline you just mentioned is twelve years. And, I mean, you—that's yeah. more than a book a year, based on you know what you have coming out. Do do you find it difficult to kind of you know be that prolific? Of course, of course. I didn't start out prolific from a place of want. I started out prolific from a place of wanting to pay my bills. <laughs> I, I need it. This isn't an easy industry. And it's really, I've, I've essentially written 15 books in eight years when you look wow. at my published record. And so I, um, I got very small deals and I was really stubborn and decided, you know, I'm the, I only have to support myself. I didn't have a family. Um, I didn't have a spouse and children that needed me and I had a fairly high pain threshold and I was like, okay, I, I'm going to do this until I can't make it work. And I was really determined to make it work. And so 
you know, I, I took on work for hire. My first four books that I did for Scholastic on the children's side were work for hire. I was, you know, they brought me the bones of a concept and I needed to find a way to make it my own. But yeah, so much of my reputation for prolific writing was born out of like not wanting to get another job. I, I wanted to get other jobs and have them still be writing. And so I would, I essentially needed to exist in multiple spaces in the industry in order to be able to do this. And then it came from a place eventually of wanting to keep um, solid ground beneath my feet. Publishing is really unstable. And I thought, okay, if I'm only standing on one rock and that rock gives way beneath me, I'm screwed. But if I can stand on multiple rocks, then even if one of them doesn't you know, hold me up, I have options. Were there any points where you came close to, to having to consider either taking another job in a different industry or any, any points where you almost ran out of money, I guess. Oh, like every day for the first six or seven years, probably. I mean, I, I did that really stupid thing. A lot of kids in their young, early twenties do. I moved to New York city because I wanted to be quote unquote close to publishing <laughs> the worst idea ever. I don't recommend that any author is close to publishing. Um, and I, I had, you know, no money. I was living much less than paycheck to paycheck because you're not paid consistently in publishing. And so every month was a bit of a question mark. I um, I had to move back home. I was lucky enough that my parents let me for like seven, eight months while I was waiting for an advance check to come through so that I could get back on my feet. I am... Um, I did a lot of design work for authors in my first couple of years. I would design some of their promotional materials and marketing materials, uh, their swag. So I would just take on little jobs that I could to kind of fill the gaps. It really wasn't until um, my first royalty check came through. And there's this idea about royalties. Royalties can be anything from, I've gotten a check for like $17 before, and I've gotten a check for like several zeros more than that when I was really under underpaid, under advanced. And, and so it wasn't really until my first book made royalties. And when I say my first book, it wasn't my first book. It was my fourth book, Vicious, that made royalties. Um, that I realized, oh, my, my agent had been telling me, if you can survive in this industry until a couple of your books start to make royalties, you'll get a little bit of a safety net. You'll, you'll have a little bit more support because you really can't make it on the advance alone nine times out of 10. And I'll be honest, one of the greatest gifts that I've had in, in retrospect is because so many of my advances were so small, I got to royalties very quickly. And so of my 15 books, one of them is out of print. One of them went out of print um, within two years, my very first novel. And one of them um, hasn't earned royalties and the and one of them isn't out yet. But the other, what does that leave? 12, uh, earn me royalties. That's, I mean, that's wow. like the dream. And that's, I think a lot of people listening, you know, might not realize how, how big of an achievement that is. So I, I, I mean, I can you just give like the two second explanation of like you know advance versus royalties? Of course, yeah. So, um, I ten thousand dollars is a really easy example to, to use, and it's also a, a real, realistic advance in in different areas of publishing. So, if you're paid ten thousand dollars upfront as an advance, it's against the number of copies the publisher thinks they'll be able to sell. So, for simplicity's sake, let's say that the author earns one dollar per book sold. It varies obviously with hardcover and paperback, but that means that the author needs to sell 10,000 copies of the book in order to earn out their advance. They'll never have to pay back any of that advance if it earns less than that, but if they sell more than 10,000 copies, then they'll make royalties. So now they're in the black. Now they're making money per book sold instead of having to pay back metaphorically, their mm. publisher. And so the vast majority of my advances for my first, you know, 10, 11 books were um, in that like 10000 to $30,000 range. And, and my favorite example I love to use is A Darker Shade of Magic, which is probably my most popular book. Um, I was given an advance of $15,000. And that's a book that has sold, you know, more than a quarter of a million copies. So you earned that out pretty quickly. So, <laughs> and, and, and that's the beauty of, of this structure too, is that, you know, you, 
say you have a huge hit, you know, a lot of readers will go back to your backlist and then you will earn in perpetuity more and more and mo- more and more money based on, you know, whatever structure you had set up. Exactly. And there is the challenge there. One of the biggest challenges of publishing is making sure that a book stays available long enough for people to find it. So my first novel, The Near Witch, um, there's a lot of demand for it, but it's out of print. And if if the publisher had kept it in print long enough, it would be receiving those advantages of the rest of my backlist that people are discovering. So one of the great challenges in publishing is making sure that a book stays on shelves or available long enough for somebody to find it. I think one of the big secrets in publishing is that quite a few books, you know, they have these big releases, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to become a hit right there. This is reverse wise. One of the biggest difficulties in certain avenues like YA, where they tend to pay very large advances for debut novels is if you get paid a quarter of a million dollars for a debut novel and you it's very, very unlikely that you're going to be able to earn that money out. Then you will start your career in the red and you will receive less money for your next advance and less money for the advance after that. And so while it seems like a really exciting position to be in, um, it can be really dangerous. And so it's really hard to have a very long-term perspective when you're starting out. Nobody's going to turn down money in this industry, but it's also one of the greatest arguments that I can give for modest advances upfront if you are able to handle the that that period of discomfort, if you have that luxury, is that it it puts you in a far better position down the road as you build your career and as you build your backlist and your numbers continue to improve. I just want to just as a way of clarification, does out of does out of print also include ebooks or are those constantly available no matter what happens? Oh, I would have to I would have to check. <laughs> I don't I don't know off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure um, that some of the ebook well no, I guess it out of print happens when a specific you're no longer making a specific amount of money per window. And and so what happens is the book comes out of print and then the rights revert to the author. So that has to include ebook rights as well. So I could technically turn around and re-release the Near Witch as an ebook and I would make the royalties from that. Um, I'm working now with my UK publisher actually to bring the Near Witch back. But yeah, it's it's one of those things where the rights revert to the author and then they have to decide if they have the time and energy to put into self-publishing it and into marketing it themselves. Oftentimes, foreign sales are out of an author's control. So I was hoping that you could walk our listeners through like how foreign rights work, how audio rights work, uh, because they're different from just selling of course. Know, a typical book to a publisher. Yeah, it's a sub rights category. So audio, foreign, and film all fall under the umbrella of sub rights. And it actually depends on the terms and conditions that the author and agent have struck with the publisher. So some publishers take world rights. And then um, there's pros and cons to both these. If a publisher takes world rights instead of world English or North American, then the publisher's job is to secure those foreign rights. The advantage of that is that every foreign rights deal that the publisher secures on the book's behalf goes against the advance that the publisher has paid the author. So you can earn out your advance a lot faster. So if you had a $100,000 advance from a publisher that took world rights and they turn around and sell your book in five different countries for $20,000 each, you've already earned out your advance. And so you'll make royalties instantly. Now, the other side of that is my publishers tend to take um, world English. And we do that because I, I have a very strong foreign rights agency. And so while the money doesn't go against my advances at my publisher, I see the money instantly when the deals are done directly through my agency. So it's not counting against a tab anywhere. It's coming straight to me. But um, foreign markets, regardless of whether it's your publisher selling the rights or a foreign agent working with your literary agent, they're fickle and they have different tastes. And you know, I am in 25 different countries right now, and there are some countries that my books have just never sold to that I, I don't have a lot of romance in my books. And there's certain countries that really tend to favor um, rom-coms and romance. And Wait, my books ones? are, <laughs> well, I know like Japan tends to really love those. France tends to really love those. And, and I'm never going to probably sell books there. 
So it's really interesting which countries uh, I tend to sell. Like every single one of my books has sold to the Czech Republic. Every single one of them. I have no idea what it is about my books that fits there so well and fits Poland so well and fits Russia and Germany. Um, but it's just, and Brazil, it's really inconsistent. It's totally out of my control. I don't always get the most up-to-date list. And so this tends to come hand in hand with the question of why don't I travel to places? Why don't I go on tour in all of these countries? Well, first, my book has to be on shelves in that country. And second, it's up to the publishers in each country, in each territory to decide if I have an audience over there that merits that kind of movement, just as it's up to the publishers in each country to decide if they're going to publish. And then even beyond that, you have a lot of issues that it seems like, you know, come up that uh, you wouldn't really be able to foresee. And what I'm referring to specifically right now is uh, what you mentioned in your Guardian interview about a scene being cut in Russia. Can you, can you dig into that a little yeah. bit? Yeah, that was really, really frustrating. So one of the hardest things about foreign rights is that uh, I obviously don't read all of those languages. So it, it falls to the sub-agents and the local agents in those countries to make sure that the translations are faithful. That is an impossible task for them. They are managing too many books, too much work, and they're not going to they're not going to sit there and do side-by-side checks. And so what it really falls down to is my readers in those countries who happen to read both the original versions in English and the versions that are translated. And um, it was brought to my attention that Shades of Magic has um, a queer romance in it, has a, a romance between Rye and Alucard. It's probably the most important romance in the entire series, in my opinion. And it was brought to my attention by a Russian reader that the Russian publisher had excised um, the romance, essentially without telling me in total breach of contract, (laughs) they had edited it. And uh, it's because Russia has some very strict censorship laws. And rather than come to me and have this conversation with me about how they were going to market the book, if they were going to shrink wrap it, which is what you have to do if it's 18 plus, if it's seen as having indecent contact, said with major quotation marks, in my opinion, um, they just made a decision without involving me and they were in breach of contract. And it it was a really frustrating position to be put in because I had some readers who were like, don't be so precious about it. It's it's two pages in this book. It's three pages in this book without understanding. I mean, I'm gay. And, and the idea of that kind of erasure, I would have rather they erased an entire action plot from the book than these characters identity. Um, and so I was end up was put in the position where I had to cancel the contract and pull the books from that publisher and, um, I had a lot of people say, oh, you're never going to be published again in this country. Like you've made this, like you've, you've angered everyone. I I've heard that I am one of the reasons that Russian publishers very rarely buy books without the series being done now. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a lot, it was very ugly. And I was very fortunate that one of my other Russian publishers, AST stepped up and picked up the series and has been as far as I've been informed, publishing them really faithfully. But that's one of the big challenges and dangers. I only read French and English. I I don't read 23 of the languages here. Uh, And so it's hard. I just, I want the books to be translated faithfully. And if a change has to be made, the author has to be consulted. That's, that's such a cool story though. And, and, you know, you're, you're, you know, a small hero in that regard, but it's also, you know, there's there's so many instances where I could see this kind of going in the same way where, you know, maybe you never get that tweet and, you know, your yeah. words are misrepresented to millions of people. So, I mean, it's it's something that like prior to this, I'd never even really thought about, but I'm sure that there's a whole world of, of you know. Oh, it sparked some fear in the book community. It sparked a lot of authors demanding that their books be examined really closely. Uh, that they're that if they had any queer content, they they put out calls for their Russian readers. They wanted to know, and and you know what? Yeah, there were a lot of really angry Russian readers who felt like I was being precious about this. But it was it was a non negotiable point for me. You would think that they would understand as the writer that of course you would be precious about it. Yeah, <laughs> even if it weren't a topic of you know so much personal import to me of sexuality, it's still. Um, 
it's still forgery. It's still editing my work and passing it off as my work when, you know, it's not mine anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's taking a fundamental piece of this thing that you've worked so long and hard on and trying to pass it off as something that is also yours as if it was a decision that you made. It's it's exactly. not at all the same thing. And also there's the risk then that people would assume that I had consented to that, that I had approved that storyline being taken out. And what does that say to my readers if they believe that I approved a change of erasure in that measure? I would have guessed that it was a service that the publisher, like your uh, your initial publisher would at least check on. Well, know? they didn't want to get caught. They, they knew they were doing something they weren't supposed uh, to do. They are fighting. They're caught in a really uncomfortable position. I do acknowledge that, that the laws in Russia are so repressive when it comes to um, content control in books. I understand that, that they're up against pressures of their own, but it doesn't make it right. And also, I mean, when you, when you di- really dig into it, I mean, we're probably talking about nearly a thousand people working on that book in, in some context or another between the 23 different countries that it's published in between marketing and publicity and editorial, yeah. and, you know, production and blah, blah, blah. You know, it, at some point, like it must, it must be kind of hard to keep track of. It is. It is. I mean, I don't even, I use Goodreads to find out uh, when I have covers go up for other <laughs> countries. Cause I can't like, I'm, I get told um, most of the time, where my books have sold, but I then have no way to keep track of that information. Only a few of the countries even show me covers for approval because it's in the contracts. So most of the time, I don't know what the covers are going to look like until somebody shows me or until I find it online. I have no idea what the release dates are until somebody posts online. Well, and like my, my foreign rights agent is extraordinary, but she's also has, you know, a hundred clients. A hundred books yeah. that she's working on, she's and if I reach out, exactly, and if I reach out, she'll provide me a list. But she doesn't even know when the book's release dates are. Yeah. That's so funny. And, and I don't know, guys. <laughs> You're given America. You seem you as you have both been involved in publishing at one point or another. I'm sure you are given to leniency in the favor of publishing, but don't let American publishers off the hook. This is a billion dollar industry. They should be able to keep track of it for you guys. Definitely. Fair. Fair point. How do you come up with the storylines for your books? Oh, worst question ever. Not because you personally, but because <laughs> every author's worst question ever is where do your ideas come from? Of course. Um, so I use I use a kitchen metaphor for this to explain it, which is essentially I have a fairly long creative process for any one project. So I imagine a kitchen stove and there are the front burners and the back burners on that stove, and I have pots on all of them. And I essentially gather story pieces like ingredients in a, in a soup. <laughs> and every time I have one of the ingredients, I drop it in the pot. But I don't actually start cooking. I don't actually start working with those ingredients until I know I have them all. So I'll let things stew in the back of my mind for a couple years, maybe, as I'm thinking through, okay, here's a setting or here's a theme I want to play with, but where's the crux? Where's the conflict? And so, um, and then something clicks, some cohesive ingredient comes along and I realize, oh, that's what the story's about. And then I'll work with it. But I I don't actually start writing a book. I don't pull a project from the back burner to the front burner until I know how it ends, until I know the bones of the story, the kind of key ingredients of the story, and until I know that I'm going to write it. Um, so it's one of the reasons I have never actually, uh, as long as I've been in publishing, I've never started a book that I haven't finished. I've never, I have no trunk novels. I have no, any of those things. And it's not because I'm a great writer. It's because I have a, this very specific process in which I don't start writing a book until I know that I have enough material to write a book. You're, you're a <laughs> and writer. I am a methodical writer. And that's because, you know, I'm under contract through 2023. <laughs> 
and this wow. is 2018. And one of the reasons that happens is I have a lot of projects on deck. And so those projects, not all of them are ready to be written, but they're all mulling. And I think that we don't put enough emphasis as creatives on that back burner time. We don't give our brains enough credit for the work that they're able to do when we are not actively cooking. You know, I'm amazed by when I leave something alone for a couple months while I'm working on something else, how much richer it gets, how much deeper the flavors get. And so I like to give my ideas time to simmer and time to steep. And, and I, I really stand by that. I like, for instance, a darker shade of magic, a darker shade of magic. Uh, the very first ingredient that I had for that book was a still frame, an image in my mind. It had no story attached to it. It was an image of a man walking through a wall and colliding with a girl dressed as a boy. And I had no story. I had, I had no idea who these people were. And I just had this really sharp image. And I put it away because I didn't have a story for it. And then I was pacing my front yard, talking to a close friend of mine, um, kind of my outbrain. She's my, not a critique partner. She's my beta reader, my outbrain person talking about what I wanted to write next. And I wanted to write a love letter to Harry Potter. I wanted something that made me feel the way that Hogwarts made me feel that kind of nostalgia for a place, because a lot of the books that were coming out at the time um, were amazing, but they had settings that no reader would actually want to linger in. <laughs> they were, you know, District 12. They were um, like, they were not happy places. And so I wanted to write something like that. And I really wanted to write a story with magic and had never written a portal fantasy. I'd never written a fantasy that moved between two actual iterations of a world. And as I'm talking this through with my friend, all of these ingredients, I suddenly think back to that still image that I had of the young man walking through the wall and colliding with the girl dressed as a boy. And I thought, what if he's not walking through the wall between rooms? What if he's walking through the wall between worlds? And all of a sudden, like the, the ingredients I had been working with, these fairly disparate pieces began to coalesce. That is very, I love that metaphor. <laughs> It becomes extended very quickly. <laughs> yeah, it works. All of the all of the extensions of that metaphor were perfect. So, I, can I ask? Is there anything? So, you don't have any chunk novels, but do you have anything that you've left on the burner? Just indefinitely? well, not indefinitely, but I will say that like my shortest burner time has probably been three to four months, and my longest is actually the book that I'm working on right now which is called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. It's my next adult novel. It's a standalone and it sat on the burner for seven years. And wow. every That's year or two, I would, I know, right? <laughs> well, every year or two, I would pull it forward and I would consider it. And I would ask myself if I had all the pieces and I didn't. And sometimes when I pulled it forward and asked myself, is this going to be my next project? I didn't feel like a good enough writer yet. Be really honest. I, I didn't feel like a mature enough writer. And sometimes I would pull it forward and I, I didn't have the voice ready. And then the last time I pulled it forward, I didn't have the ending. And I the ending is the one thing I never, ever start a book without because it gives me something to work toward. And uh, on bad days, it keeps me from quitting because I know how the story ends. I just have to get there. And on good days, it gives me something I'm looking forward to. And to extend the food metaphor a little bit, an ending is the taste left in your mouth when you finish reading. It is, to me, the most important thing. It, it retcons. It recolors the whole meal before it. So I never, ever start writing without an ending I feel strongly about. And that was the last piece. And finally, um, a few months ago, when I was talking with Tor, my adult publisher, about what I was going to work on next, I pulled the project forward and I examined it again. And I finally figured out the ending. And, and I finally felt like I had become a strong enough writer. And I felt like I had the voice and perspective. And now I had the ending. And so it took seven years it, and and now I'm writing it. And so I don't think that, I don't believe in giving so, something up indefinitely because you never know if it'll take that form where it just needs longer. Or the other example I can give is City of Ghosts, which is my first major middle grade, my first major kids book that came out um, a couple weeks ago. The idea, one of the cruxes, the key ingredient at the very core of this book um, which is set in Edinburgh, Scotland, which is where I live. But the core is 
the core from the first book I wrote that never got the publishing deal. So I cast aside every other ingredient in that book, but there was one key ingredient I didn't want to lose. And so even that book, um, which would never go on to be published, gave me an ingredient which would go on to create a best-selling children's book. And so you never know. I think it's really important to know when to let go of certain projects, but understand that you're letting go of an iteration of a project that some of those ingredients can still be salvaged sometimes. You have this like unbelievable community of people that are coming at you every day asking for like, what's next in these series or like, this is such a cool cover. We're doing fan art and you know, you've really like rewarded them by continuing to write these amazing stories that they can really get behind. But I'm wondering if you're ever like nervous or anxious about your work because we've always well, we've all had those <laughs> moments, you know, where you wonder like, is this good enough or should I keep going? But I mean, you've done this so many times and you've had so much validation that I was just wondering. Oh, but the pressure gets worse. Does it? Like, that's the thing. It's like Jenga, right? So every time you succeed in a round of Jenga, you create a more precarious tower. And, and yeah, so in fact, I actually feel like while my books may have gotten stronger, my confidence in them has gotten weaker because I'm constantly pushing myself, but I'm also so afraid because at some point I'm going to hit that that inevitable place where somebody says in a review, um, this is weaker than her last book. And that is my greatest fear. And the thing is, my books are going to be different, right? One of the reasons I pressure myself to take on different challenges in every book is so that I don't end up with this side-by-side comparison. But it's inevitable. The more books I write, the more people are going to pit them against each other and try and judge. And it's terrifying to me. The last thing I want, the, the day I fear probably more than any other, is the day where a reader says, I liked her last thing better. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like you it's know? an inevitable thing, though. And and it, it and does. for you, it's probably terrifying because you they're all your babies. But, you know, I, I'm wondering, like, do you feel like, I mean, I guess what's the question I'm looking for here? Does it matter that much if people like your previous work better than your current work? Because, you know, it's all still your work. It matters to me, I think. Um, it matters to me as a creative and somebody who genuinely tries to push myself more with every single book. Um, it really does. I struggle. I think the more books I've written, the harder time I've had with first drafts because you you have to write something wrong before you can write it right. And it doesn't matter if you're writing your first novel or your 20th novel, you still are going to write it wrong first. And there's this exasperation that comes along because you think, come on, I've done this 20 times. Like, why, <laughs> why can't I write it right the first time? And you can't. And so I think I get more exasperated with myself because I can tell what's wrong. I can sense the weaknesses in a draft, but that doesn't absolve me from having to write them anyway in order to have something to fix, you yeah. know? So I struggle more, I think, with my books, the more success I have. Because there, I am just like, maybe some other authors would answer this question differently. But personally, I become almost paralyzed with the fear of disappointing that readership. Totally fair. And, and I didn't want to put you on the spot or anything. It's just something, no, I, I, it seemed to come across in a lot of your tweets and everything. And, and I was just really curious because, you know, I, and I'm sure Kyle can relate to this as well. You know, the further we all get along our careers, it does kind of seem like that energy builds a little bit more than than I would have expected it to back in the day. Well, and they're ex like, this is the thing. My readership is really, my online support is really unique in that they are extraordinarily warm and comforting and are constantly telling me to take naps and hydrate and do these things. And they send me messages just wanting to make sure that I'm okay and that I'm sleeping and all of these things. Like I love them, but it really doesn't diminish the pressure for me. I, I feel like I have friends who are like, yeah, but Victoria, you could write a grocery list and your readers would be happy. That doesn't make me feel better because I want them to hold me to that standard. I want them to continue. And it's fine. There are readers out there who much prefer a darker shade of magic to vicious and vice versa. And that will never bother me. It's one thing to say this book spoke to me in a way that that one didn't because each of my books is designed to speak to a specific kind of person. It's there to be there for a specific kind of person and they're not all the same. In fact, I'd never want them to be that the same person. 
But it's very different for someone to say, "Mm, I can tell she was tired. I can tell she was rushed or she phoned this in. I never, ever want to hear that. And so I try to hold myself to as high a standard as possible so that I never do hear that. So that even if somebody doesn't click or connect with my book, you know, book number 14, the way they connected with book number eight, they still don't ever say she's losing her touch. Totally fair. And I think that you've been doing a really amazing job with all of your work. And and it's very clear. I, I want to make sure that we give you uh, a little bit of time to, you know, plug your your new books because you have several of them coming up. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, City of Ghosts, you have Vengeful, which is the... Uh, oh, Vengeful. Uh, I was going to say, I feel like that's the book that's going to take up that uh, the other question that you were about to ask. I think so. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so excited for it because, I mean... Oh, I am too now. Because <laughs> I, I just read it this weekend. Yeah. Vengeful nearly killed me. And I say that I'm not sure that's so much of hyperbole. <laughs> It's, I mean, I, did you try and become an EO? Um, I wish I could have had my EO power would have been terrible. It would have just been like reliving. Somebody once asked me what the worst superpower ever would be. And I said, hindsight, (laughs) um, because I genuinely think like I can look back at vengeful now though. And I can be really, really extraordinarily proud of what this book is, but I, I scrapped it at the beginning of this year. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that struggle? And we'll just call this my super uh, swift and suave segue into the the part of the story that you struggled to tell. Yeah, of course. Um, so Vengeful has been a, a labor of love over the course of five years. A lot of people ask, was Vicious always supposed to have a sequel? And, and yes, it was. The thing is, from talking about business again, Vicious was my very first adult novel. And there was no guarantee that it was going to sell. And because of that, it was really imperative from a business standpoint that I end it in a way that it could stand alone. So if I would never had the ability to come back to these books, to this world and these characters, it had to feel satisfying. And I feel really strongly about that in general, that a first book should be able to stand alone, regardless of whether it's the first book in a series or not, that that the strength of the series is kind of built on the back of that first book's ability to satisfy. And there's a big difference between readers finishing a book and wanting more and readers finishing a book and feeling like they needed more. I didn't want that, but I wanted them to want more. And then a couple of years after Vicious came out, I finally got the green light from my publisher and said, okay, fine, this book is popular. We didn't think it was going to be, but it's, it's gaining this traction every single year. And so you can do the sequel. And I had, I had planted some threads in the book. I, I was really excited to return to it. I, Victor is the closest thing I've ever written to an autobiographical character. I, I wanted to spend more time with him. And I started writing the sequel. And it it was cumbersome in the way I think all sequels are cumbersome, in that you're revisiting a world in which you've already established a baseline, and now you have to make it bigger and better. And and that doesn't always mean, you know, bigger explosions. It can, a lot, often it turns from a big outer conflict to a big inner conflict, but but sequels have a very unique amount of pressure to them. So I, I had other deadlines I was managing, and I was writing Vengeful, in between the margins, which is similarly how I had written Vicious in between the margins, Um, except this time it was a known entity. It was under contract and there was a lot of pressure. And I struggled a lot with it. I'm not going to lie because I, I wanted to satisfy people in a way that Vicious seemed to satisfy them. And that's the other struggle with a continuation of a series is you have not only a baseline of the world building from a craft perspective, you have a baseline of expectation from the readership. And I was working on it and I was trying to keep all those public voices out of my head and just go back and ask myself, if I were writing a book just for me, what would it look like? Because that's how Vicious was made. And I struggled a lot. And I turned in a draft at the very end of last year. um, And I turned it in on like December 29th. I got a call from my editor on January 2nd which is never a good sign. And, um, and she said to me, if you had turned this book in two years ago, she said, it's a very good book. She said, if you had turned it in two years ago, we would have probably taken it to print with minimal editing. She said, that's how good it is. She says, but you have grown more in the last two years than this book is. And she says, I'm not going to stop you from publishing this particular story if this is what you want. 
because I know I'm making a big ask. She's like, but I believe that this book could be more than it is. And I believe that um, Vicious is a book I will always look back on and be incredibly proud of. And she was like, I'm not sure in five years you will look back on this book and be as proud. And that's a really hard thing to hear Uh, from your editor because she essentially was putting it in my court. She was like, I'm not going to tell you to rewrite this book, but I'm telling you what I think. Yeah, because you can look at that as either like really sage advice or a backhanded compliment. Oh, brutal. It was brutal because there's the thing she was like, and this was this is where it comes back to my readership, though. She said, this is a continuation of Vicious and you have a lot of readers that will be perfectly satisfied with this book as it is now. And she's like, the question you have to ask yourself is, is that enough? Because I had always set out this goal for myself that a sequel could never merely be a continuation of the book that came before it. It needed to have its own challenges. It needed to be able to be its own story. And I wasn't living up to my own rule. And so um, after a couple days of crying, I'm not going to lie, some some whiskey and some crying and some like, because it was a really good book. This is the thing. It's really easy to trash a bad book, but it, it wasn't a bad book. It was just not the right one. She says, this isn't the right one for 15 books into your career. This isn't what you are better than this, basically. Um, And she's like, and I will help you find the right story. And so um, I did. I deleted a 100,000 word book. Wow. Yeah. And, um, And together we spent the next two and a half months finding the right story. And, and it came down to a matter of uh, all the characters stayed, but the, the subplots became main plots. The main plots became subplots. The, the world, the rule, like the pieces changed. Everything changed around. So I was able in the end to salvage about 15,000 words, none of them in more than 500 word increments. So like fragments, fragments of scenes. And it, I'm going to be very honest, and I don't think all of me has recovered from that experience yet. I think I'm still like, I'm writing my next middle grade, my next uh, City of Ghost book right now. And, and I'm struggling, like my ego, my confidence took a major hit, even though the final product of Vengeful is probably up there with Conjuring of Light as the proudest I've ever been about a book in the end. Um, it, it was grueling in a way that nothing in my publishing career has ever been grueling before. And, and if you've just read Vicious, you know, it, it's not only a story challenge, there's our structural challenges to these books. Mm-hmm. They're told in a linear structure, they're in braided timelines. And um, there are a huge number of moving pieces in these, in the, the villain series and in these books. And so it wasn't even just a matter of figuring out the plot it was a matter of figuring out, okay, I have the plot. I have six main characters, like six essential characters, and they each have a, a full story arc. How do we tell it? Like, how do you tell it moving across timelines? And we, oh God, we failed so many ways till Sunday trying to find the structure before I finally found it. But yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. Like, I still cringe. I still I, I still have a lot of like... Um, some some trauma from this book it it threw me in a way that none of my other projects have ever thrown me and at the same time um i have never been more grateful to my editor for pushing me because the end product is something i know i'm going to be proud of five ten years from now that's amazing i mean that's like the best case scenario is that you're gonna have you're gonna become you're coming out of the end of the tunnel as a better writer with a better story. So now I just need I like a couple be... years to yeah. not look at a, a computer screen. Apparently <laughs> you, you just need a, a quick walk outside and then get back to doing exactly. What you do I'm like, I'm going to take a break. And everyone's like, you're right. You should take a month off. And then my publishers are like, you should take a week off. And I take like a couple hours off and I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm ready now. You <laughs> should get back yeah. to work. Cause I mean, this is the thing when you're in publishing, especially when you have, you know, three publish. I have three publishers and a comics publisher. Um, it doesn't stop. So even as honestly, one of the reasons I'm struggling right now is because I'm I'm about to go on tour for Vengeful in two weeks, and I'm writing City of Ghosts two for my for Scholastic, my middle grade publisher, and working on the Invisible Life of Addie Larue for tour. These deadlines don't stop. There, there's very little time for you to stop and just exist in the work that you've accomplished there's there's almost no time to look back yeah 
I, I I understand that, and I think it's a combination of you know 2018 yeah. of the the internet society that we all live in, and then just it sounds like you're a little bit of a workaholic, which just a is great for your readers, but <laughs> just a little. Uh, I have to ask though. Uh, you've, you've said before that Victor is coming back. Is Eli also coming back? Yes. In fact, I would say like, so I have what I call long con characters. I like to uh, establish a series of expectations uh, about a character and then subvert them. So in Shades of Magic, there's a character named Holland who is the villain in book one, the antagonist in book two, and a protagonist in book three. And I really like these subtle changes. I never want readers to feel comfortable with their relationship to the characters. And Eli is a definite villain in book one. And I'm never going to make him a protagonist. I want to be very clear about that. But (laughs) But so is I know, I know. But this is the thing you learn (laughs) in the reading of those books is it's never what people do. It's why they do it. And something about Victor's MO is in, is, more comprehensible to readers than Eli's MO. And so that's why people tend to like Victor and hate Eli. But I am really, really looking forward to Vengeful because I got to tell Eli's whole backstory. And you learn exactly how Eli became who he is. My goal is not to convert people from Team Victor to Team Eli, whatever that is. I just want people to... I like to drag people grudgingly into feeling for characters and making sure that they understand that these characters they care about are flawed and human. And I'm really, really looking forward. Eli's flashbacks were probably my favorite scenes to write in the book. We really appreciate you spending the time. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This has been an episode of Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff, and the other crazy voice that you heard on this show is Kyle. You can find us online at WWDW Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at WWDWPodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on ThePodglomerate.com, where you can find your next favorite listen. Uh, There's like 15 shows on there. Disclaimer, I own that company. Uh, I would really appreciate it if you dug into one during this break that we're about to take. Uh, We also recommended a bunch of shows in the beginning of the episode that you can go back and listen to uh, to try and figure out what you would like to listen to in the future. We want to thank Victoria Schwab for being a guest on this show. You can pick up any of her books by going to her website, V.E. Schwab, that's S-C-H-W-A-B dot com. Uh, Or you can just Google her name and you can find all of her books on Amazon or your local independent bookseller. Uh, They will have all of her books. They're fantastic. Uh, Again, thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. The music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library. And the music that you heard in the middle of the show is from Ben Sound of bensound.com. We want to thank all of our listeners sincerely for sticking with us for the last 70 plus interviews. Uh, We will be back in March with a lot more. Uh, You can't get rid of us that easy. Um, And I promise that the structure of the show will be a little bit more entertaining and engaging. And we hope you really enjoy. So thank you so much. And we will see you in a few months. And in the meantime, tweet us at WWDW Podcast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.